Hello, vampires and slayers. This is Mixtress Ray, and you're listening to What's This Bitch Talking About? To which the answer to that question is Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Season 4, Episode 1, The Freshman, and also Angel, Season 1, Episode 1, City of... Dot, dot, dot. So, as I've mentioned before, um, this is, I recap, rehash, re-all the things every episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer exactly, except not this week, 20 years after its original air date, and um, as I've mentioned before, I am going to start talking about Angel because the Angel series debuted 20 years ago on the 5th, but it's going to be a much shorter um, segment talking about the Angel stuff. Which, what did I do with my notes for Angel? There they are, okay. My notes for Angel are on this, like, tiny little stapled together pieces of paper. <laughs> okay. Um, all right. So first of all, I want to apologize. If any of you guys like to listen to the podcast, I usually try to get it up that day. My general goal is to watch the episode record my podcast episode and upload it all on the day, 20 years after the original air date. But, um, this week it all got messed up. So I'm going to tell you that story first. I mean, it's not really a story, but I feel like I have to confess because this is the very first time there've been times that I haven't recorded. I haven't had time to record on the day. Um, and there have been several times that I've uploaded a couple days later, but I have never not watched the episode on the day. My tip, my typical um, mode of attack for this whole process is that I watch the episode on Thursdays, which is a couple days before it air it the 20 year anniversary date with my mom, and I take notes or I don't take notes when I watch it with my mom. I just watch it without taking any notes. And I usually listen to the Buffering the Vampire Slayer podcast. Um, sometimes I watch the Revenge of the Nerd recaps on YouTube. Um, and I have lots of books that I consult. And I rewatch the episode, the, day, the 20 year anniversary date. And that's the time that I take notes. And that's when I get out of my books. And then I record the podcast and upload it, blah, blah. This week, I was going out of town on the Saturday, the 20-year anniversary date. So my plan was I had Friday the day before off, and I was going to cheat a little bit and go ahead and watch the episode, take my notes, record the podcast, and upload it. But I was still going to, because I've never not watched the episode. That's the one thing. I want to watch the episode on the 20-year anniversary every single time, no matter what. So I was still going to watch it. I was going to watch it a third time, even though I'd already recorded and uploaded the podcast. My plan was to watch it when um, I got back into town, because I was going to get back into town like around 11 or 11.30 at night. So I would still technically be watching it, or at least starting it, before the day ends. And I got back, I didn't realize until Sunday afternoon that I had completely, well, first, first I sat down to like start, um, recording the episode and all that stuff on Friday. Like I was going to like my, for my plan. And I just wasn't feeling it at all. I didn't want to do it. I didn't want to watch the episode and take notes. So I was just like, okay, fine. 
I'll just go ahead and watch the episode when I get home tomorrow night, like I was planning, and I'll go ahead and take notes then, and then I'll record the podcast on Sunday afternoon, because I was off on Sunday. So I redid my plan, and then I get home on Saturday night, and I completely forgot to watch the episode. So my confession to you guys is, for my the first time ever, I've been doing this project since, you know... 1996 wasn't that the first or 2016 wasn't was it 2016 or 2017 whatever I've been doing this this is you know episode one of season four and I have not not watched the episode on the day and I know it's just a silly little thing but it threw me the fact that I just completely forgot I was so crushed that I ruined my record (laughs) that I, when I realized it on Sunday afternoon, I was just like so disappointed in myself and sad that I decided not to record it that day, not to record the podcast that day. It was like, fuck it. It's too late now. (laughs) And then I was kind of still feeling that way yesterday. So now it's Tuesday. It is the 8th of October and the 20 year anniversary date was three days ago. This is the first time I have not watched the episode exactly 20 years after its original air date. So I figure I give myself three of those. So I'm doing okay. I mean, I wasn't planning to give myself any, but um, it just sucks that I'm not going to be able to 100% say that I did this project to its fullest potential, Um, which is dumb. It's just very like nitpicky to be that picky about it. But I want you guys to know that I am dedicated to going right back on track. This isn't like, you know, whenever you cheat on a diet and then you just decide you're not doing the diet anymore at all because you already messed up. I am going to go back to being completely dedicated. I just had a little, had a little, uh, relapse. (laughs) That's not what you would call it, but you know what I'm saying? I know most of you probably don't care. You're like, who cares? You're, you're doing this in the general vicinity of 20 years later. But I have specific rules for myself, and I like to follow those specific rules. <laughs> I'm very analytical in nature. Um, so I just got kind of depressed and refused to do it for a couple days after I realized I totally messed up. I mean, I had the plan. I just completely forgot. I got home from being out of town for the day in plenty of time to go ahead and watch the episode. And like I had planned, but it just didn't happen. And I totally forgot. I should have set a reminder on my phone or something. That's the first time I've ever forgotten though. Cause there've been other times like that because the 20 year later, it happens to fall on a Saturday, which is kind of the worst possible day. Right. Um, for me personally, because I usually work on Saturdays, which sucks. It, it's hard to do because this project, you know, if I do it all in one day, which is what I prefer to do then it takes me a good three to five hours to do the whole process. Um, And when you're working eight hours in the day, it's just hard to find the right time, especially on a Saturday, because if you do have plans with friends, it's likely going to be on a Saturday. Um, It just doesn't work out very well, but that's the way that it, that's the way that it falls. <laughs> 20 years after 1999, I think the show used to air on Tuesdays, 20 years later, the anniversary date is Saturday. Unless I wanted to alter the anniversary date to Tuesdays, but I always work eight hours on Tuesdays too. So whatever. Anyway, 
let's go ahead and talk about this shit. I finally forced myself. Like, I just didn't even want to do it. I just wanted to skip the freshman altogether because I didn't, I messed up my ritual. And when I mess up my rituals in my life, I get really like, I tantrum me. I, I throw tantrums when my rituals are thrown off in my life. <laughs> and I threw it off myself this time. Anyway, hi guys. How are you? Let's talk about the freshman. Okay, so the first part of my notes, because I didn't even feel like watching it on that Friday that I sat down, I took some notes just off the top of my head. So that's the first little sector of my notes. So let's see. They're, they're going to be very general because I, I thought maybe I don't have to watch it right now. Maybe I can just take notes. I mean, I just watched it last night. Maybe I can just take notes and then go ahead and record the podcast um, and just do it a little differently this time. But it didn't work. I didn't have enough memory. Um, Buffy feels so alone. Xander is the hero. Blah, blah, blah. That was my summation of the episode right there. Buffy feels so alone. Xander is the hero. Blah, blah, blah. Giles equal, equals man of leisure. Olivia, meet cute with Riley. Klimt versus Monet. Sunday is a cute villain. We meet Professor Walsh. Why is B staying in a dorm? Celine Dion poster. Music. What would Buffy do? You're, you're my hero. Why do we need the masturbatory comment from Xander? Why do we need Willow spurty knowledge comment of human bondage guy? Willow outfit is cute. That is the extent of my notes, having watched it the night before. <laughs> when I sat down on Friday. So let's just move right past that and get into the real notes that I took just now while watching the episode. Buffy isn't ready for school. She isn't prepared. It's five miles away. Um, so that does explain a little bit of why she's staying on campus. The fact that um, somehow it's still in Sunnydale, but it's five miles away. Like, this town makes no sense, which they obviously didn't think about that whenever they were making this show. But Sunnydale seems to like have absolutely everything and it seems like everything's in walking distance, but somehow you see Sunnydale is five miles away. Like, I feel like they could have just called it, they could have just named it after like a neighboring town or something. And that could have helped explain why she's staying in a dorm and why it seems like a completely different town. Like there was a college in Sunnydale this whole time. We're supposed to think it's like a small town, you know? Um, anyway, whatever. That's just me being nitpicky like usual. This episode was written and directed by Joss Whedon. And I have just, Michael, the other day, um, we were talking about Cabin in the Woods. They're showing it at a theater, um, close by. And... I did love that movie when it came out and it was, it's directed by Joss Whedon too. And I was just like, eh, I don't, that movie isn't actually that good, you know, or whatever. And I loved it when it came out in like 2011 or whenever it was. And, um, he was like, wow, you're really over Joss Whedon, aren't you? <laughs> yes, I am. Yes, I am. Every, I used to really love the written and directed by Joss Whedon episodes. I used to think that they were very thoughtful and in some ways I'm still going to think that, you know, I still love the musical episode. My very favorite episode of all time, I think is written and directed by Joss Whedon and that's Restless. But I just, you know, 
there are a couple of things in this episode, several things in this episode that stand out to me as very Joss Whedon-y things that also stand out to me as very Joss Whedon-y things because they stand out to me as very self-important, educated white guy that used to be a nerd that thinks he's, you know, thinks that he grew up. It's like stereotypical white guy that grew up getting made fun of a little bit in high school. So they think that they've really gone through struggles, you know, (laughs) I don't know. So one of the things is his whole commentary. So Buffy ends up, so it's basically this whole episode. The theme is she feels very out of place. She feels very overstimulated and overwhelmed by the new college situation, which I think is a very important plot point to explore because ultimately Buffy's not going to stay in school very long. Um, I think she might make it through her freshman school year, but she does drop out next year. Like when her mom gets sick, she drops out and she doesn't ever go back. And I think that's the right that's the right call for her character arc. Like Buffy is not a person that would excel in academic settings. And so I'm glad that I'm glad that they don't just have her. It's not like, it's not like say by the bell or something, the college years, you know, they don't just have her going to college because it's expected of her to go to college. I mean, I think they have her start college because she's still kind of clinging after, after all this time of, she's been a slayer now for like four years of her life. I think, I think she was like 15 when she got called. We met her when she was like 16 and now she's 18. So she's been a slayer for three or four years of her life. And she's still at this point where she's trying to do normal things And going to college is like her last ditch effort at doing something normal. So the character arc of Buffy deciding to go to college and giving it the old college try (laughs) and then dropping out. I mean, it makes, it totally makes sense when her mom gets sick, of course, she's going to take some time off. But the fact that she doesn't go back is completely realistic. And I love that. Anyway, we're getting way ahead of ourselves. Anyway. So she feels very overwhelmed. That's the entire plot of the episode. Let's see what Nikki Stafford. Oh, um, I told you guys last week, um, since I was talking about how I'm going to start talking about Angel, I wondered if Nikki Stafford had an episode guide for Angel and she does guys. I was so excited that like, it took me like two seconds to find it online, of course. And, um, so then I went on eBay and I found it. (laughs) You guys are going to like... I don't know, like nobody cares, but it's just really awesome to me whenever this kind of stuff happens. Like, I wondered if it existed, then I found it, and then I looked it up on eBay, and within, you know, five minutes of doing a search, I had already ordered it because it was $4. I found it for $4, including shipping. Of course, it's used. But it doesn't have any, and it came like three days later. It doesn't have, there's no spine cracking. There's no highlighting in the book or anything. Like it looks a little aged, 
like the cover's a little bent up, but it's a paperback. It's in great condition and it was four dollars and it's basically like textbook sized because it's an entire episode guide and it has a bunch of interviews with the actors and stuff which i don't really care about but and it's got like a bunch of pictures of the actors which i don't care about but whatever so i have exactly now one angel guide so i will have a little bit of research there's also an angel podcast and that Revenge of the Nerd guy that I mentioned earlier, I'm pretty sure he does an angel episode guide on his YouTube. So I will have several avenues of study for both Buffy and Angel. I don't always use all of those avenues of study. Anyway, that was just a little aside. What are we fucking talking about? Oh, I was going to look up the... Because I always love Nikki Stafford's tiny little, like, one-sentence um, summations of the episode. So let's see what she says for the freshman. Buffy has to make the difficult transition from high school to university, and she feels left out and lost. Absolutely 100% true. <laughs> um, okay, so that part of this episode, just the general atmosphere of her, I mean, the entire episode is her feeling really overwhelmed and turning to everything that she's found comforting in the past and every, every person, every place, everything she turns to for comfort lets her down you know in the very very beginning you see her she's walking around she doesn't know where she is she's overwhelmed by the people everywhere and you can just tell it's just like an introvert goes to college you know it's it, very relatable very relatable and she's super overwhelmed and then she runs into willow and she's like oh my god are, are you isn't this crazy? Isn't this so overwhelming? And, and Willow's just like, no, this is exciting. I love everything. And then she makes that stupid. Okay. That's one of the, that's the first like Joss Whedon-y moments that bugged me, which was, you know, Willow's so excited about college that she starts talking about knowledge thrusting into her and spurting everywhere and exploding all over her. And it's just like, really, Joss, are you 12? You're going to make some stupid, like, really is this happening really <laughs> i i used to think that was funny um but i'm too mature for that now <laughs> anyway and she just is not listening to buffy at all she's not she's just kind of ignoring her she's just sort of like she's so excited that she can't grasp that buffy's having a hard time and then they run into Oz and Buffy's like, Oh, Oz, like, isn't this crazy? Isn't this overwhelming? Oz is going to understand what I'm talking about. And Oz feels very at home there because his band has played a lot of shows there to his credit though. Like Oz at least responds to her, you know, like a friend comes up and interrupts the conversation as she's like talking to Oz, like, isn't this overwhelming? Like, I, I feel so overwhelmed. You know, like somebody validate me, somebody recognize that this is a weird experience. It isn't just me. Right. And to his credit, even though they get interrupted by some, you know, frat boy type that talks to Oz for a second, when he walks away, Oz goes back to the conversation. You know, he's like, he's like, but yeah, I'm, I mean, I've been here a few times, um, but but yeah, I don't know what's going on, you know, and obviously he's just trying to make her feel better, but that was sweet. You know, he's in typical Joss Whedon fashion. The only people in 
this entire episode that give Buffy any sort of any sort of validation or listen to her or reflect back at her or counsel her at all are Oz in this tiny little moment giving her a little bit of validation and then later Xander is the fucking hero of the episode of course anytime Xander is the hero of the of an episode it's because of Joss Whedon because that's his surrogate character um okay let's get back to the notes good music <laughs> Uh, free jello shots for freshman women. The guy that said that and gave her the like flyer at the beginning of her going into college, he creeped me out. Like, <laughs> and they showed it from her point of view, you know, sort of looking up at this guy handing her this flyer. Free freshman shot, free jello shots for freshman women. Ugh, it just made my skin crawl. That was just kind of like a weird little rapey moment. And I don't know if it was supposed to feel that way. It's possible that it was. I used to feel really like jealous when I saw this. Whenever I watched the first few episodes of, of season four of Buffy, I used to feel really jealous of the college experience. And almost any time I've ever seen portrayals of like dorm room life and college life and all that stuff, I, I used to feel really jealous because I didn't have that experience. I did eventually get my bachelor's degree and I went to my hometown college just like Buffy did. Um, but I didn't go back to college until, um, it was 2006. So I would have been 23. I went back when I was 23. So I was cons considered a non-traditional student because I was going to college at the time you know, a full year after my other class, my other high school classmates, what do you call that? I don't know, whatever, um, would have graduated. So if I would have gone right after high school, I would have graduated in 05. So, and because I went to the college that's in my hometown and I still lived there, I, you know, didn't need to live on campus or anything. So I never had that like dorm situation. And I thought, I used to think that that's a rite of passage that I missed. But now that I know about like all the really, like the kind of rapey bullshit that happens to most college women, now that I know about all of that, I'm really glad I didn't have that experience, you know, but the idea that I could have lived with what I think I might've missed out on is living in a dorm room with a stranger, like being able to like maybe make a lifelong friend with someone that I didn't know previously by living in close quarters with them. Like the fantasy in my head is that I could have made like a soul friend for life from, you know, that kind of situation. But I, I know that doesn't happen for everybody or anything, but anyway, um, some of my notes, one of the others people that handed her a flyer was, have you accepted Jesus Christ as your personal savior? And Buffy replies, you know, I meant to, and then I just got really busy. <laughs> Which was sweet that, like, that was her polite response to, like, a Jesus person. 
Um, Willow, when she finally runs into Willow, when she's on campus that first moment, um, she's looking perfectly in her element, um, which is another good character choice for Willow, I think. Um, she, she looks totally cool, like her hair is, is all cute and like flippy and short, and she's wearing like a really bright orchidy purple cardigan and a bright pink shirt and a lime green bag and then just all of that with her red hair it's just like so many beautiful colors they made a very stylistic choice and this might be one of the reasons why looking back on it people probably this is probably totally unconscious for people but like Buffy has been a very dark as in the way that it's lit a very dark show from the very beginning like it's been very shadowy very dimly lit that's part of the charm of it I really like this the aesthetics of it being a very dark show it for me it just looks better that way and this episode in particular and I, I'm curious to see now that I'm paying attention to that particular aspect I wonder how far it goes into season four but I remember season four overall being a very brightly lit season and I think the reason that they did it especially with this first episode everything is very harsh and bright and I think that's a stylistic choice that is smart in this particular episode because you know everything's supposed to feel really overwhelming and part of that is being very bright and another reason that they did that was I think they were trying to set the show apart from Angel so Angel aired the very first episode ever of Angel aired I think right after this episode of Buffy ended so you would have gone just in terms of like visual aesthetics you would have gone from a very oversaturated bright sunny existence in that first episode of season four of Buffy to a very dark noir presentation on that first episode of Angel and I think they did that on purpose but I don't know how far they carry that through I think overall season four is the most brightly lit season um, but that's just me thinking from memory I will see if you guys have any insights on that, mixtressradio at gmail is where you can send me your letters. Thank you very much. I love hearing from you. Um, okay, so she runs into Willow. Willow says, I've heard about five different issues and I'm angry about each and every one of them. So that's cute. Um, they go to the library because they're just sort of walking around campus and like taking it all in. And Buffy's just looks like she wants to run away. And... I recommend I know I mentioned this a lot but I really if you are in a position to if you're watching these episodes along with me anytime you're watching them alone um, I recommend wearing headphones um, I don't know how great the quality is gonna come through if you're streaming the episodes like on Hulu or something but whenever I watch my DVDs of Buffy with headphones on it's the attention to detail that they go into with the sound is really nice um, like for example I never noticed this before watching this episode but there is a it's very echoey when they go into the library and it just kind of adds to the atmosphere of like 
we're supposed to be feeling with Buffy extremely overwhelmed and they go into the library and everything's really echoey and it does make it even more overwhelming because she's in such a big space and that is a feeling that like is kind of nostalgic in a bad way like you know that really evokes whenever you go to a new place you go to a new school for the first time it is extremely echoey you know what I'm saying whenever you're in that moment of just feeling like nothing is familiar everything is awful it just gets kind of echoey you know I don't know if that makes sense but I thought that was a nice touch and that was something that I had never noticed until I watched the episode with headphones just now like half an hour ago so that was cool um oh there's this awful little moment of um I'm assuming that this is actual foreshadowing because um I'm willing to bet that Joss already knew he was going to kill off Joyce in the next season. But, um, so Buffy makes this comment when they're checking books out, um, for their classes, um, or buying them, I guess. She's like, I can't wait until mom sees the bill for these books. I hope it's a funny aneurysm. Ooh, ooh, it just gives me chills just thinking about it. Like, ah, okay. Um, Okay, controversial opinion time, which I'm gonna, I've made it before and I will be making it again since this is the season of Riley. I like Riley. I did not used to like Riley. Like most people, I had a visceral reaction. I never, you know, I in general, I don't like think he's cute or anything like that. Like he's definitely not my type. The big burly types that Buffy goes for are not my type. You know, overall, Angel, not my type. But, and I used to have a very visceral reaction to Riley like most people do. Is he the most boring of all of her boyfriends? Yes. But he's a good guy. And seeing his face in this moment when she knocks all the books on his head and he stands up and like introduces himself to them, to Willow and Buffy, I just, I got this warm, happy feeling like, oh, it's Riley. Like he has his problems. Yes. But overall, he's a sweet guy that was there for Buffy and super devoted to her, you know, except for when he cheats on her with vampires at the end. But let's not think about that yet. Um, that's a long time from now. He's a good guy and I'm happy I'm happy to explore that. This is the very first time that I've done a rewatch where I thought to myself, oh, look, it's Riley. Like, I've never had, like, a warm, fuzzy feeling for him before, but I'm feeling it this time for some reason. So I'm kind of excited to see how that changes my view of him as a character. Like, I'm going to be paying more attention to him because of the nature of this project um, than I ever have before. So we'll see how that goes. I'm excited to see him. Um, so then we p meet Professor Walsh. Oh wait, no, I'm skipping ahead. Okay, one thing that um, was pointed out in the Revenge of the Nerd YouTube series, which is really great, by the way, where they, he does like episode guides and stuff. And um, he brought up the fact that in that first conversation that Riley and Willow have, they're kind of nerding out about psychology and um 
Willow asks Riley if Professor Professor Walsh is going to talk about operant conditioning because it's kind of her thing. And he points it out in the Revenge of the Nerd episode. And I thought, oh yeah. So they're already kind of giving us a little bit of a nod and a wink. Like her deal is operant conditioning and the whole initiative is kind of about operant conditioning because their whole thing is their whole project is, you know, trapping demons and vampires and trying to teach them to be good. And, you know, the, the philosophical argument with operant conditioning, which is kind of like the whole clockwork orange thing. If you're not familiar with operant conditioning, it's, it's the, the whole idea of like training people or animals to, I think that, okay, so there's an experiment called like the little Albert experiment or something like that. And it's one of, it's one of the famous experiments in psychology. It was extremely unethical and cruel. And it was, they taught a little boy to be afraid of white rats or white rabbits. I don't know. Let's say it's white rabbits. <laughs> So they would just like set a little white rabbit down next to this child and then the child would start to like interact with it and like pet it and stuff. And then, and then they'd shock the child and they would just do this over and over again until just the sight of any little white fuzzy animals would make that child traumatized and he would start crying and it was just awful. It was just awful that they did that. And I think that sort of spurred a restructuring of psychological experiments. Like from then on, they had to be a lot more ethical. <laughs> like don't fucking traumatize babies just for science. You know what I'm saying? But I think that is an example of operant conditioning because that's kind of what is going to be done to Spike. He's going to get captured and they're going to, he's going to get shocked every time he tries to, um, you know, be a vampire and kill like he used to um, basically if he even like has the intention to hurt a human being um, he gets intense neurological pain so that's another example of operant conditioning so that's professor Walsh's, walsh's thing so it's nice that there's like that little sprinkle of what's to come right there um, so we get the awful foreshadowing of you know joyce's death talking about the funny aneurysm and then we get this little moment of talking about operant conditioning so that's nice. Um, we meet Professor Walsh. Oh, there. Okay, another little moment of Joss Whedon. Um, he is... So, Buffy is thinking about taking this course on pop culture. She hasn't actually joined it yet, but she's, like, going into the class to see if she wants to take it. Um, and she's asking someone standing next to her. So the guy, first of all, the teacher... Oh, God, he's wearing, like a Western belt buckle. He's drinking like, it looks like it's fucking iced tea out of a mason jar. He's just carrying it with him while he's walking around the classroom talking and taking sips of it every two seconds. It's, it's just gross. And we're supposed to think it's gross. And he's just talking, anyway, whatever. He's introducing the class and Buffy's asking the person next to her, like, is this class full? Do you know? Can I still sign up? And he just like fucking calls her out and yells at her in front of the whole class and is awful and cruel and terrible. And this is another like 
Joss Whedon-y thing, I feel like. He's sort of making fun of the fact that these pop culture classes exist and the, the kind of arrogant assholes that teach these types of classes, which is ironic because, like, <laughs> Joss Whedon's shows are, like, keeping those classes alive, you know? <laughs> anyway. Okay, I need to go faster through these notes because we're already 36 minutes in and I still have to talk about most of this episode and the Angel episode. Okay, here we go. All right. Um, Evil Bitch Monster of Death, which is what... That's just like a stupid little joke, but Professor Walsh is like introducing herself and she's like, I'm Professor Walsh. Friends call me Maggie. Or if you hate me, you call me evil bitch monster of death. Like, really? Are you kidding? Another Joss Whedon moment. Like, obviously we're supposed to think that this reference to this book of human bondage is super, like, intellectual and smart and cool. And from what I gather, I've not read that book, but... From what I gather, that book is kind of about the pressure of society, like the bondage that society um, presents to humanity, I guess. Um, let me know if you guys have read it, because I would love to hear, like, should I read it? Is it actually, like, a good, important book that I'm going to grasp the concepts of? I don't know. Let me know. Let me know. Um my next note is Buffy looks great in olive green. So this was almost the outfit of the episode, but it turns out it's it's in second place. Um, Buffy is not at a good time in her fashion right now um, because, you know, it's 1999. 1999 was still okay for fashion, but it's about to get real bad real fast. Like the rest of the series is going to be difficult for picking an outfit for each episode. Um... I think maybe Willow's outfit in the beginning is tied with this one. Um, but anyway, she's wearing like an olive green tank top with a knee length pink and olive green like tartan plaid skirt. It's really cute. Um, the whole Klimt versus Monet thing is kind of funny. So there's this gang of vampires that torments Buffy and has been on campus living in an abandoned building since 1982. So 17 years, because it's now 1999. And they just basically prey on people on campus. And then they take all their stuff to decorate their, their house with. Or their abandoned building or whatever. So it's just like a little cadre of vampires. There's like four of them or something. And, um, when they take all the stuff, they have a whole thing worked out, you know? So they, they kill somebody, one of the new students on campus, they particularly prey on freshmen, and then they take all their stuff and leave a note behind, um, in their dorm. Like, oh, I just couldn't take it. It was too much for me, blah, blah, blah. Which for one thing, how do they know where these kids live? Because, you know, they're shown attacking these random kids out when they're walking around campus. So how do they know which dorms they live in? I don't know. Maybe when they go through their stuff, it says in their paperwork somewhere in their backpack. I don't know. But um, so they so no one will miss them. They're like, which is kind of smart. That's kind of a smart vampire 
thing. It makes sense that they have thrived for 17 years doing this exact same thing. Um, but then when they take all their stuff, they usually, they have like a contest going of the people they kill. Will they have a Klimt poster or will they have a, a Monet? So they've got, you know, they're stapling them all up and they've got a little tally and that's just funny. Funny moment. There are two instances of fat shaming in this episode that I didn't enjoy. Um, just, it's not even worth like recounting them, but it's just, I'm glad that that kind of shit, that like punching down kind of humor has in general gotten a lot better, better in the last few years because that kind of stuff really sticks out now and it was just really pervasive and kind of unnoticeable just kind of slipped through the cracks back in the day you know like that kind of stuff was just so common that it was like you didn't even notice it unless probably you had unless you were one of the people that was being punched down to like fat jokes have not typically registered with me because I have been fortunate enough that I haven't been overweight during my life. Um, so that's stuff that I notice now, but it just, it sucks that that kind of stuff is just everywhere. I mean, it still is, but so there's just two little crappy fat shamey moments in this episode. One was from Buffy and one was from the, um, the villain and which is kind of probably supposed to be presented as like an anti-Buffy because she's a vampire that is also a blonde. So she's another blonde, strong woman, um, but she's a vampire. She also is style conscious and kind of a bitch <laughs> and all that. Um, let's see. Okay. Where am I? So Buffy, okay, so this is another, like, I started to talk about. Everywhere she turns, she's trying to find someone to acknowledge her pain and how left out she feels and how overwhelmed she feels and how out of her element she feels. And she's bested by this gang of vampires really easily and she runs away because um, she's just off her game. And she goes to Giles for help. So everyone she goes to just is not listening. When she talks to Willow, Willow's just like, no, I'm excited. Ejaculate science all over me. I love it. Education, school, great. Um, and she tries to talk to Oz and he's just kind of like, yeah, yeah, I understand. Like, I don't really, but I'm being nice. And then she goes to Giles to ask him for help. And he, this is when we first meet Olivia. So Olivia is just a super cool chick that shows up every once in a while just to remind us that Giles is sexy. <laughs> he can get model, model women to go out with him. So she like walks out, Buffy just sort of barges into Giles's house and she walks out like wearing a shirt and nothing else. Um, so it's obvious that, you know, and Giles is playing like fucking David Bowie. So it's obvious that like he's been getting some and Buffy's very creeped out by it. And she's like, and, and he's wearing a robe and he's like, what? I'm not supposed to have a personal life. And she's like, but you're very, very old and it's very, very gross. <laughs> and then Giles says, 
okay, before I succumb to the ravages of age, like, what do you need? And so she says there's this vampire and blah, blah, blah. And he basically shuts her down. He's like, look, I'm not officially your watcher anymore. And this sounds like something you can handle. You're going to have to start handling things on your own. And this is the first time we see this particular plot point, but we'll see this many more times throughout the series. There's several times that like Buffy goes to Giles for help. He, his first instinct is to deny her because she needs to be self-sufficient and he knows that. And then he later feels bad and decides to do anything that she wants. Um, which happens later in this episode. He just like kind of shows up like the white knight, knight of swords and ready to save her, but it's too late. She's already bested the vampire gang and everything else. So she goes to Giles and he is just kind of like, I don't know, help yourself. Um, do it yourself. You don't need me. And then she goes to her mom and her mom has like a bunch of shit from the gallery, a bunch of packing crates and shit in her room. So Buffy, like all, she feels so out of place and her arm is hurt from the fight with the vampires. Um, and she's just sort of walking around feeling listless and awful and whatever that stupid teacher yelled at her. Like I'm really feeling her pain <laughs> in this episode. Um, and then she goes home to her mom and her bedroom isn't even like, she can't even get into it because all the shit is everywhere. I liked the nod to, like, it'll, in most pop culture, kids' rooms are sort of the same. They just stay the same. It's like the, like a time capsule. They can go back to it at any moment, and it looks exactly like, you know, somebody will be home for their 20-year high school reunion, and they'll go into their old bedroom, and all their old stuff is still there. It's just dusty. Like, their parents have left it exactly the same. Does anyone, did anyone have that kind of experience? Like, I feel like most people I've talked to, like... I guess because I'm not like upper middle class or anything. So maybe if I was, that's probably the type of environment where like a person could just decide to keep their kid's room the same. Like maybe they can afford to get all new stuff and they don't have to take it with them when they move out. But when I moved out, I took every single thing with me, <laughs> you know, I still have Sorry, my computer's restarting. It's making noise. Doing updates or something. Oh, I hope it works out this time. Ugh, most of the time when my computer updates, it like maybe thinks about not working for a few days. <laughs> Let's try not to get distracted by that. <laughs> um, I don't know. Like, it just always bugs me when it's like a time capsule. It's like, really? Like, you didn't need to take that stuff with you? Your parents didn't need to like use that room for something else? They just... But I guess... If you are in like a mid or upper middle middle class or upper class family or whatever, they're going to not need that room and they can just keep it the same and they can afford to buy you all new stuff whenever you move out or whatever. I don't know. But her room is still her room, except it has a bunch of shit in it. So it was nice to have like a little bit of a nod to like, yeah, Joyce has a life too. She doesn't just like sit around waiting for Buffy to come home. And she's just sort of like, I didn't expect you to come home for a couple weeks. Just being typical, aloof Joyce, like not giving a shit about her daughter, which sucks. It sucks that we don't have, like, we're supposed to remember Joyce as being this super nurturing mother figure, but we actually don't really see that 
aspect of Joyce. Every once in a while, we'll see a moment of Joyce being a mom, but we don't really see that aspect of nurturing mother figure Joyce until she gets sick next year. We hardly see her at all this season. Um, I read something about that, like she was going to be on holiday or she was taking a year off from acting or something like that. So they just, they wrote a few scenes with her and shot them like all at once. And then she was gone the rest of the year. Like she only flew in to like be in a couple of scenes in the whole season and that's it. Um, so we're not going to see much of Joyce at all this year. This is one of the only moments we see her and she's just being very aloof towards her daughter, which I think is shitty. Um, but again, that kind of goes back to we're really only allowed to love one female character in the show, and that's Buffy. Um, okay. So, oh, my next note was, will we ever see the minty mug again? So I'm going to be paying attention. I don't remember. I don't know if the minty mug exists in Giles' apartment, if it got destroyed in the library, at the school? Like, did he move it with his books? Did he save his minty mug? I don't know. I don't know if we'll ever see it again. I'm going to be on the lookout. I'll let you guys know. Um, mm -mm -mm. Yeah, I wrote, no one is validating her or reflecting back to her at all. Um, lighting is all bleached out. Home isn't home. Um, okay, so then she gets back. She goes, she can't seek comfort at her home. So she goes back to the dorm and her side of the room is completely empty. Oh, I didn't mention we do meet Kathy, the roommate, which she's going to be the center of the next episode, which is awful. God, I'm not looking forward to watching next week's episode. That's all about Kathy, the demon and all that shit. But anyway, um, so she gets home and all her stuff is gone and there's a note. So they've already done the whole they're taunting her at this point. Like they're telling her, we're going to kill you. Like we already have your stuff. Usually they take the stuff after they kill, but you know, whatever. So then she goes to the bronze and this is where she finally gets a little bit of comfort. At first she's just sort of looking around. Like, I don't know who she thinks she's going to see. Like she never hangs out with anybody except, you know, her friends, her tiny group of friends. I don't know who she hopes to see, but it's like she doesn't recognize anyone at the bronze and she feels really left out there until Xander just happens to be there. He's back from his cross country road trip. That wasn't really a cross country road trip. And then he's the savior of everything. Um, Angie Hart is playing at the bronze. Um, what is the song? I kind of want to look it up because it's, I don't actually own this particular song and I think I need to figure out, I need to go, buy it or something. Okay. There's some good music in this episode and there's a lot of it. As Buffy wanders around the campus, confused by all the activity, we hear Stretch Princess's universe, Paul Riordan's Freaky Soul, The Muffs, I Wish I wish That Could Be You. Buffy goes to Giles' house. He's playing David Bowie's Memory of a Free Festival. Buffy enters the bronze splendid. So that's Angie Hart, Angie Hart's band. And she's actually performing you and me. Okay. So I need to remember that. I love Angie Hart. She's so fucking cute. And she's kind of like the resident, almost like the resident musician on, um, 
Buffy because she she's in a band called Splendid at one point. Or is that Splendid? Did I just say that? I probably just said it and then it went out of my head immediately. Yeah, Splendid. Okay. So that's when she's in a band called Splendid. At one point, she's in a band called Front Day. I think she's in a band called The Sundays at another point. Um, and then she does a solo. She writes a song um, for season seven of Buffy as well. So she's just, she's awesome. I love Angie Hart. I love her sweet little voice. Anyway, I heard Angie Hart. Okay. Buffy's off her game, blah, blah, blah. So then Xander is the only one that listens to Buffy and counsels her and kind of brings her back. Like all she really needed to hear, I think, is you're a badass. You're going to continue to be a badass. Don't worry. It's fine. Um, and he gives her the speech about like, what would Buffy do? Which is fine. Which is, you know, what would Buffy do? It's, it's. It's a great thing to think about because she is a hero and that's the point. But then he has like this little moment. Well, sometimes when it's, when I'm in the dark and I'm alone, I think, what is Buffy wearing? It's like, that's just extremely gross. Like, don't do that, dude. Don't do that. But it's just, you know, played off as if it's a joke, whatever. Um... Oz knows her handwriting. I just thought that was a sweet little moment. Like they, Oz and Willow find the note and they're talking to Kathy, um, in her dorm room. And Oz is like looking at, it, he's like, no, this isn't Buffy's handwriting. <laughs> I like that. I like that he knows that. Willow's like, how can you be so calm? And then Oz says long, arduous hours of practice. Good moment. And okay. So my next note is suddenly with nothing, she pulls herself together. What was the catalyst? So Xander like gives her the pep talk and then he decides, okay, we're on the case. And he goes and that's when they like look up some newspaper articles and microfilm or something. I don't know where they are in a school library. I don't know where the fuck they are when they look this information up. Um, and they find out that this particular gang has probably has been doing this since 1982. And then they go, they find them because they read about this abandoned building or whatever. And so they figure that's where their, their lair is. So they go find them. So Buffy's, so they're looking through like a skylight down at, um, which is a reused set from previous seasons. It's very familiar. And they're like looking down through the skylight at the, um, vampires who are going through her stuff at that moment and just like making fun of her and shit. And that's when she makes another fat joke towards the villain. Um, but anyway, she accidentally crashes through the skylight and then there's a fight and just all of a sudden, like she's still being very, like her puns are off. Her fighting is off. Sunday is pretty easily besting her and she keeps cracking her arm, which is awful. God, wearing that, hearing that on the headphones was not fun. Just hearing her arm crack over and over. And then she suddenly holds it up and she's like, it's not broken. And then she punches Sunday with the arm. It's like, how is it not broken? Like, we just heard it crack like 16 times. <laughs> like, I don't know. That particular part of the plot was, it just bugged me. And all of a sudden she just like is fine. 
and she starts fighting like her normal self again. And I think, and I wrote down what was the catalyst because I think I looked down, I was taking notes or something and I didn't see what made her suddenly turn it all around. She suddenly got her mojo back. Um, and I think it was because her friends had just shown up. They were like there as backup, but they weren't really necessarily doing anything yet. Um, but I think it's like, I don't know what the, I don't know if this is like a real theory or what it means, but like, I know this show constantly reinforces that the thing that makes Buffy different as a slayer, why she's lived longer than any other slayer, why she is not like the other slayers, hashtag not like the other slayers, is because she has friends and she needs friends. Like she literally needs people to reflect back at her. This entire episode, she's been looking for validation. She's been looking for someone to just listen to her and understand what she's going through just a little bit. And as soon as her friends show up, like she doesn't actually need them for backup, except she wants them to witness her. She wants someone to witness her. She wants someone to be there. That's it. She doesn't necessarily need for them to do anything. Just remind her that she can do it. She needs their backup. She needs their literal presence. Because as soon as they show up, because it's like, it's Oz, Xander, and Willow. As soon as they show up, she starts being a badass again and she easily dispatches everybody and they do help at one point um she easily dispatches the layer of vampires and then they take get gather all her stuff up together and move it back to her dorm for her and she's fine like by the end of the episode she she's got her confidence back at one point they're like do you need a hand and she's like no i got this <laughs> and that's it. She needs witnesses. And this is something like I've always known that the show wants you to, wants to constantly remind you that she's different because she has friends. But I think it goes a step further in that she needs people to validate her. And I just wonder how far that rabbit hole goes. I wonder what you guys think of that particular theory. It's just a baby theory at this point because you know, I was just kind of like, what happened? How did she just suddenly like pull her mojo out of her ass? Oh, it's because her friends are there, even though they're not doing anything. Just, just the fact that they're there, she wants them to see her. It's like her, them being there means that they have confidence in her. So she's fine. That's all she needed. Um, I don't know. It's just interesting theory. I don't know how I feel about it yet. So that's the end of my notes. Oh, the initiative. Um, Giles shows up at the very end while they're carrying all her stuff out. And he's like, I'm ready. We can fight the evil. Let's go. And then they just have him carry boxes because it's all over at that point. The very last scene, we get to see the initiative. Of course, we don't know what it is yet. It's just some, some military type dudes that come in and like take a vampire or something. I don't know what they were doing, but hey, they're there. Okay, let's get into the ratings. Um, oh, wait. First, I want to look at the episode, the Nikki Stafford episode guide and see if there was anything that I highlighted or anything like that that I wanted to talk about. Yeah, there was one thing that I highlighted. This episode contains one horrible moment of inadvertent foreshadowing. Yeah, the thing with the funny aneurysm. Yep, I already talked about that. I love that one of the nitpicks, um, Nikki Stafford, why is Buffy staying in a dorm? She must live like 10 minutes away. 
why would the vampire's lair have a skylight? <laughs> I love her. <laughs> uh, she's my, she's my soul animal, soul spirit, uh, spirit animal. I don't know. <laughs> People won't say that anymore, do they? Um, okay. So let's go ahead and get into the ratings and then we'll talk about Angel for a few minutes. Um, quote of the episode. Shit. What is the quote of the episode? I've had a hard time picking one from this. I think it's just going to be the little exchange between Willow and Oz. How can you be so calm? Long, arduous hours of practice. I like that. <laughs> it's like, you know, yeah, he appears calm, but he's... And later, you know, he kind of turns into sort of a Zen master. Like, he's able to control his werewolf side because he's learned like ancient techniques of Tibetan Buddhism and shit. Okay. Let's get back to so that's the quote of the episode. The outfit um, as far as like looks go like Sunday isn't like a super interesting villain like she's just a one-off obviously but her style is really cool like she's 1999 goth which is my personal favorite aesthetic, basically. Well, 1997 goth, but 99 was still good. So she's wearing like this, when we first, when Buffy first fights her, she's wearing, first of all, her hair is super cool. Like weird little knots and like twirls and sprigs and like that very unique to the end of 90s kind of hairstyle. Like, funky hair was a thing back then, and it was so much fun. It was just creative and interesting hair. So she had that going on for her. And also, um, so what she was wearing, the outfit of the episode. It wasn't really a corset, but it was one of those dresses that has kind of like seams that make it look like corset boning. It's kind of structured. Um, sort of nod to Victorian dresses, but it's very late 90s in its ex execution. So it was like a dark blue and black sort of corsety dress thing. And she was, it was kind of knee length, a little shorter than that. And she was wearing like knee length leggings under it and combat type boots. And, um, she also had this really cool choker that was like a, it looked like just a regular velvet choker, but it had these strings that came down in the front. So it was kind of like a choker scarf sort of thing. Um, and then it had these cool little black teardroppy jewels on the ends of the corset scarf thingy. So all you saw was like the corset scarf, choker scarf, you saw like the choker part on tied on her neck. And then you saw these little strands of velvet coming up down in the, from the back around to the front with the little jewels. It, it just looked cool. Um, and she also had on like a bunch of silver rings, which is also totally my aesthetic. I just thought Sunday's outfits were pretty damn cool. And she always had like a bright red lip, which always looks hot to me. That particular combination of she was very pale and she had like white blonde hair and bright red lips. I just, I love that look. That's an aesthetic. I can get behind that. 
and she was cool. She did a lot of weird things with her hands while she talked, um, which might be distracting to some people, but I think it looked cool. <laughs> I can't even explain it, but you guys know what I'm talking about if you watch the episode. Um, so she gets outfit of the episode, Sunday, RIP. You could have, actually, you were pretty much a bitch, but you looked cool. Um, my um, object of the episode, as you guys know, I like to pick one item from every episode, one prop or one piece of clothing or something, and pull it out of the episode and keep it for myself. And I have several of these things now. I have Buffy's crochet pillowcase from the first couple seasons. I have um, Giles's minty mug. I have Buffy's fuzzy hooded leopard coat from like one episode of season two. Um, of course, these aren't like actual prop replicas or anything that I got. I just found versions of these things in my own life. And they're pretty close. Like the crochet pillow cover and Giles's minty mug are like exactly the same brand and stuff that Buffy had, I think. It seems like it, anyway. The my minty mug looks exactly like Giles's minty mug. Will we ever see it again? I don't know. I'm gonna keep an eye out, guys. Help me. But the object in this episode, I'd never noticed it before. But in the very first scene, Buffy and Willow are hanging out at the cemetery talking about what classes they're gonna take and all that shit. It's like probably the night before school starts or something. And Willow is wearing like a bright yellow hoodie and there's a patch on the hoodie. I'd never noticed it before. And it has like a picture of a woman's face or something. And it says the hysteric woman, like in like horror type font. And I just think that's hilarious. I would love to have a patch that says the hysteric woman on it. It, it was cute. Um, MVP of the episode, uh, I'm going to give it to Buffy, I guess because she needs it. She needs our validation, guys. Let's give it to her. <laughs> okay, now we got to do the five by five ratings. I haven't thought about this yet. So my first score is always the treatment of women in the episode. Let's see. Okay, only women we even see. Joyce, Sunday, Buffy, and Willow. Joyce is just dismissive terrible mom for two seconds um willow is you know true to character willow's very excited um about school so she's treated okay in this episode i think um she does kind of make it all about her whenever they realize buffy's in trouble and oz has to reel her in um, Kathy, I guess there's Kathy and she is just, she is just made off as a joke immediately. Like she seems a little bit reasonable in this first episode. Like I could see her as possibly being a character that we grow to like, but you know, she's going to turn out to be a demon and she's going to be gone by the end of the next episode. But, um, they immediately make fun of her with one prop. Like, she's dismissed simply because she has a Celine Dion poster. And that's it. Like, one aspect of her personality, we've written her off completely. And they show her as, like, snoring and just being annoying. Um, so she's not really treated very well, not with much respect. But 
that's okay because like we don't even know if she's gonna be a permanent character yet um but yeah sunday is just shown as a bitch her and buffy both make awful fat shaming jokes in this episode um Sunday's just a bitch. She's just a bitch. I mean, I guess there is also that other vampire chick that was in her gang. It does pass the Bechdel test because whenever her and the other vampire chick are talking, they're usually talking about people that they've killed or Buffy or fashion. Um, of course, Buffy and Willow, almost all their conversations in this episode are about, you know, their own lives going to college and all that shit <sighs> I don't know I'm stalling as far as treatment of women it's not great but there's nothing overtly sexist going on it's just the typical style of underdeveloped female characters even in Buffy there's a lot of underdevelopment in female characters so almost everybody's one note except Willow and Buffy and that's always the case like even Joyce Joyce gets a lot less screen time than Giles. Um, oh, we've got Olivia, I guess. Also, another female character. So it's kind of balanced. The characters are pretty balanced. Like, the vampire gang, I think, was... It was either one guy and two chicks. I think there was another person in the background. I don't even remember. So I think it was, like, two dudes and two chicks. So it was a balanced vampire gang. You know, when Buffy seeks help, she goes to you know, her mom and her dad, essentially. Um, we also get, you know, two examples of teachers, Professor Walsh, female, and that awful pop culture guy, male. So it's a pretty gender balanced episode, actually. Um, so I'll give it a three. We'll just give it a middle of the road because it's not outright disrespectful to women, except for the fat jokes and some other underdevelopment of characters you know the heroes in the episode are pretty much all portrayed as men except buffy which is always the case always every once in a while willow will be a hero for a second um but not usually um okay so then my second score is always the overall enjoyability of the episode i did not want to watch this a second time <laughs> This episode, I think it's a little bit triggering for me because the feelings that are explored in this episode are all about being overstimulated and wanting to run away from unfamiliar things. And that is a feeling that I know very well. <laughs> I think it was done well, but it's not a fun episode to watch for me. Um, I think it's an important episode to exist. I, I like that I like the villain as far as like, I think that's a good villain for Buffy to have somebody that's not at all, it, it was obvious that like she wasn't someone that was difficult to dispatch, but they had to show her as being difficult to dispatch because Buffy's off her game. Um, so I think that's, I think the choices of this episode existing and the way that it's structured and the character development, most of the decisions made were good decisions it's a good episode but i didn't actually enjoy watching it so again i'm just gonna give it a three it's gonna get this is a very middle of the road episode for me 
So that means 3 by 3 equals 9. So that is the Buffy episode. I'm going to take a little um, beverage break and I'll be right back so we can talk about Angel for a few minutes. Okay, the first episode ever of Angel is called City of. Um, so my, my notes, Angel is drunk. <laughs> um, Angel is a cool guy with a cool walk and stakes two vampires at once. So they're just really portraying him like he's wearing the long trench coat. He's wearing black tank tops. Like he always wore white tank tops in Buffy. And in Angel, he has graduated to black tank tops. <laughs> we do get to see him injured and topless in the first episode. Ooh, and he's standoffish. Cool music. Like everything is really like kind of forcing it down your throat that Angel's a cool guy and he is gonna be a cool guy on his own cool show you guys oh yeah like really but yes yes really so yeah Doyle um so Doyle is a character in Angel that he's only in this first season um, he's played by the guy that played Becky's boyfriend, Mark, on Roseanne, um, who was apparently a drug addict and he was difficult to work with and he ended up getting fired and written out of the show. And he died of an overdose like a few years later. So it's kind of like sad to see him because you just, he's a tragic figure, you know, but he was a fun character. Like he's not a super great actor, but He's there to sort of guide Angel. He has visions, so he's going to be the one that's been that's going to like bring Angel cases to work on, essentially, because he's going to have visions of something bad happening in the future, and Angel's going to be able to prevent it. You know, familiar structure of a show being set up right there. Um, and he keeps emphasizing that Angel needs connections. Um, and it's brought up that since Angel drank Buffy's blood just a few episodes ago, which in the timeline would be like four months ago, probably three or four months ago, um, he now has a craving for human blood. So even though he's saving people, like he's patrolling the streets and stuff and like saving people from getting, you know, killed and shit on the streets of LA he's not really connecting to anyone so Doyle is pointing out to him that he needs connections and the powers that be are the ones that give Doyle his visions so they're setting up there's much more of a religious structure in Angel kind of the show it's there's powers that be there's the senior partners of Wolfram and Hart and Wolfram and Hart has like a mythology to it as well because the wolf ram and the heart um it's a, it's a whole thing there's much more of a weird mythological slash sort of religious tone hierarchy there's much more of a hierarchy and a structure to angel as a show um and so doyle's talking to angel like you need connections blah 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 we all got something to atone for. So that's the quote of the episode. We all got something to atone for. So the entire premise of Angel is just set up, of course, in the first episode of here's a guy with a really dark past has done a lot of terrible things. And 
so everything he does in this series is he's trying to balance the scales. He's trying to do good acts to outweigh all the terrible things that he's done in the past. Which is fine. I'm all for an arc of redemption. I'm all for atonement arcs. That's, that's why Angel is interesting as a character. Because he feels bad about the things that he's done and he's trying to atone. And I think that's a noble story that is interesting to watch. So... Um, so Doyle tells him about a vision of a girl. And so Angel tries to like go like befriend this girl so he can help and be around to intervene to hopefully prevent her death. And so he goes and like watches her while she's at work. And his pickup line to her, I think this is hilarious, is, are you happy? <laughs> um... Oh, guy Guy at party tries to pick up Angel as an actor. So he goes to like some like fancy Hollywood party with this chick because he's just kind of like being her bodyguard. And um, somebody just walks up to Angel and like, I like your thing. I like your brooding thing. Like, here's my card. And Angel's like, I'm not an actor. And he's like, haha, you're funny. Here's my card. <laughs> and it's just a silly moment. And then we see Cordelia at the fancy Hollywood party and she's all like, yeah, I'm doing great. I got a great apartment. I got all these acting gigs, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, Angel interacts with her for a second. And then afterwards he says, it's nice that she's grown as a person because <laughs> she's just being her same normal vapid self. Um, my next note is damsel in distress. I don't know what that is. I mean, obviously, there's damsels in distress all over the place. Angel overall is a show of damsels in distress. Unfortunately, like you take the exact same creator and directors, you know, David Greenwald and Joss Whedon are the big guys for the Angel show. You take like, and David Greenwald was one of the main writers on Buffy as well. And you take them and you put a guy at the center of their show and it's... You, it really shows the contrast. Like, almost everything is the same, except it's a guy at the center instead of a girl. But when it's a guy, they're constantly trying to reinforce how cool he is by his cool car and his cool jacket and all the cool music and all the really quick cut scenes that are kind of seizure-inducing and awful and did not age well. Oh my god. You guys, can we talk about it? It's bad. All those like shush, 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 with like the terrible like fragmented cut scenes and it just like is so off-putting and I think they do that it probably not throughout the entire series of Angel but they probably do it for at least this first season god it's it's the worst anyway and the the theme song or, or like the theme during the theme song like the the little like cut scenes from the show and stuff is just a bunch of like sexy women getting into cars and getting attacked and like it's on the surface it is a much more sexist show than Buffy but it's really not that different it's just the things the, these are the types of things that I'm going to point out because the contrast between Buffy and Angel and me talking about these shows simultaneously and watching them back to back is going to be triggering for me. I've never done that before because you're going from sort of this adolescent world of girl superhero 
trying to make her way through the world, going through lots of things, to this other show by the same creators in the same universe that with Angel, we're supposed to see this this tortured guy. It's very Batman. This tortured guy that has a super cool car and he dresses so cool and everybody wants him, but but he's just kind of, he likes to sit in chairs and read uncomfortable chairs and read books and like, man, we're supposed to think that he is so cool and sophisticated and he saves women all the time and he's just this tragic, cool, sophisticated character. I don't know. I think there's a class distinction going on here. We're supposed to think that Angel is classy and Buffy is a mess. And there's really nothing to back that up except Angel is a man and Buffy is a woman. And that's it. So I think that's going to be a theme. We'll talk about it. <laughs> Stay tuned. Cordelia isn't as happy as she says. I think this is a cool little character moment because like, of course, Cordelia would be pretending to be fine. Um, but we see her at her apartment and it's not like she talked about her apartment as being like on a beach and like super awesome, all this shit. And she's getting all these jobs. But you know, you hear like on her answering machine that her agent's sort of saying like, like, just sit tight. Like, um, things will start happening. I promise. We don't no no auditions yet for tomorrow or whatever. Um, so you can see that she's not actually getting very many jobs. She, her apartment's kind of dingy. She's eating f food that she smuggled from the party while she's listening to her messages. You see her like hang up the fancy dress that she was just wearing in her closet that has like five items in it total. Like that's her one nice party dress. And then she has a couple other things. Um, because at the very end of the last season of Buffy, you saw that like her dad got found out for like tax evasion or something and all of her money and her home and everything all got taken away. So, so she like, she's always been someone with money. And now for the first time in her life, she no longer has it. So that's nice to see that plot point carried through and having some weight to it. We're going to see Cordelia struggle. We're going to see her build herself as a character. So at least we have that, you know, um, Angel has a great place. Like how, where the fuck does he get money by the way? And that is another thing talking about the class disparity between men and women in Joss Whedon, Buffy verse. That is a very big deal because we always see Giles is fine. He's fine. And he gets paid to be a watcher. Buffy is struggling and she always struggles. And she never gets paid for being a slayer because she's supposed to find it within herself to slay. And then Angel, as soon as he gets his own series, by the end of this episode already, you see that this is about to happen because Cordelia suggests it. She's like, why don't you start charging people for saving them? We could do it on an income-based level. You know, people that can afford to hire you for your help will pay handsomely. But, you know... So Angel gets to have his own show where he saves people all the time and he gets to get paid for it. 
Cordelia is struggling in this dingy, terrible little apartment, trying her fucking hardest, but somehow Angel, who's never had a fucking job, has this super classy, like, basement apartment with exposed brick and all this, and an apron sink and, like, all of this, it's fucking elegant as fuck. Because <laughs> he always, like, he always has a place that's elegant as fuck. Where does he get his money? It It's just like almost taken for granted that all the male characters in the Buffyverse, they have money and they get paid for, they're, they're seen as altruistic heroes, but they also happen to get paid for it and that's fine. But if Buffy wants to get paid for being a slayer, which there's an episode of her in season six where she sort of suggests that she get paid for some of her slaying duties and everyone's like, whoa, that's immoral. You can't make that suggestion. But when it's made to Angel, fine. He gets to have a whole fucking detective agency and get paid for saving people. It's fine for him. And it's fine for Giles to get paid as a watcher, but not for Buffy to get paid as a slayer. And that is one of the most sexist points in Buffy that I know I've brought up 1,700 times and I will bring it up 1,700 more. It just pisses me off, you know? Anyway, my voice is getting tired, so I need to stop. <laughs> I need to wrap this up. I don't want to talk about Angel forever. I know that I'm still going to talk about it a lot, but I do want to keep it to be a shorter segment. Okay. Um, when he saves, he saves the chick from something and she thinks she needs to repay him with sex. Um, thankfully, Angel immediately is like, no, that's not what this is. I'm just providing you a safe place to stay. Like, he's never, luckily, one of the reasons why I can tolerate Angel as a show and Angel as a character is that he's never sleazy towards women. Ever. Thank God. <laughs> At least we have that. We already get to meet Lindsay. I found out in, um, so he's going to be a big character on the show and he's just an annoying lawyer guy and he's super sleazy and slimy and smarmy looking and ugh. I read in the Angel guidebook that he was, he actually went in and read for the part of Riley on Buffy. And then they called him back and they said, hey, why don't you be this lawyer guy on Angel instead? Fucking thank God. Like Mark Blucas, who plays Riley, again, like I said, he's not my type. Fine. But can you imagine the guy that plays Lindsay on Angel? Ugh. Ugh. Like, that guy is just so smarmy. Like, he's, like, smarmy in, like, Ben Affleck levels of smarmy. You know what I'm saying? Like, no. He could not have been Riley. You could not have be believed him as being, like, the all-American Iowa boy. Like, no. <laughs> anyway. Um, okay, some of my notes. I'm going to try not to comment on them too much. Angel's at the library doing research with several computers. <laughs> Since when does he know how to use a computer? Also, he's in like an LA library in the middle of the night and there are no librarians anywhere. And he's just like sitting at this bank of three computers, just like wheeling himself in between them, like looking something up over here. And then, oh wait, he needs to check this one over here. Like, what is that? <laughs> that was just funny. Tina doesn't confide in Russell. Tina is D.E.D. -E dead. So I think this is kind of an interesting plot point. Like he, the whole, you know, the half the episode we're focusing on this tiny blonde chick beautiful little blonde chick um that he's supposed to save because Doyle had the vision about her dying blah 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 
and he doesn't save her. The first episode of Angel's hero show, and he doesn't save her. I think that's kind of cool that like, we're going to, from the very premise of the show, we're going to see that he's not going to always make it in time. You know, he's still going to be tortured, Angel. Thank God. <laughs> I just think that was kind of smart that like, it wasn't completely formulaic. Like, here's a vision of this chick and you're going to save her. And that's going to happen a lot of the time. Like, a lot of the time, the entire episode is going to be Doyle has a vision, Angel prevents the tragedy, and it wraps up. But it's not going to be that kind of formulaic. And from the very beginning, it's they're letting you know that it's definitely not always going to be that formulaic because he doesn't save the girl. And I think that's smart. Um, Wolfram and Hart, he pushes Russell the awful vampire guy that killed Tina, the victim chick. He pushes him out of the top of the skyscraper of Wolfram and Hart law offices. And he is a vampire. So he, you know, bursts into flames on the way down. And it's just a really cool shot because Angel just like goes in there with his trench coat. And he's like, he's like, look, I'm not going to put up with this shit. I don't care how like authoritative and like, cause they're all threatening him. Like you, you shouldn't mess with this guy. He's rich. Like we're his law firm law firm and you know you don't mess with us and he's like oh really and then he kicks the guy out of the windows of the skyscraper and then he just falls flaming to his death so that was cool that was fun um oh then russell goes after cordelia and angel shows up in time to save her cordelia is the best oh my god first she starts confiding in him which is just exposition because we need to hear that, like, even though we saw that she's sort of hiding how poor she is and all that stuff, we need some Cordelia exposition, especially, you know, I think they're sort of assuming that there could be new viewers coming to Angel that haven't seen Buffy. So they have to be a little exposition-y in this episode. So she sort of like tells her story to this vampire guy, which is not characteristic of Cordelia, but whatever, it needed to happen at some point. So there it was. So she tells him like her whole sob story because he has invited her to his house and he's like gotten lured her into his office and it's just the two of them together. And she's not super wary of him, <laughs> which she should be. But, and then at one point she's like, wait a second, you're a vampire. <laughs> and he's like, what are you talking about? And then she's just like immediately realizes, oh fuck, I'm alone with you in a room and I've just called you out for being a vampire. Like now I am going to be fucked. And I just love that. Like Cordelia, like, of course she would just immediately be like, oh, you're a vampire. And then realize, oh shit, I shouldn't have said that because I might actually be in danger right now. So perfect, Cordelia. Love it. Love that moment. Our little queen of swords with her beautiful smile. Oh my God. Such a sweetie. That little charisma carpenter. Um, so Angel saves her. And then at the very end, that's when we get like this speech from Cordelia where she sort of, she shows up at like some office or something that is in the same building as Angel's apartment. I'm assuming is like upstairs because this apartment's definitely like windowless basement type apartment. And she's just like, look, we need to get, we need to get some shit organized. She's got a duster. She's ready to go. She sees a cockroach in the corner and she's like, ew, kill it. Um, she's like, look, I'm gonna need you to pay me a salary 
Um, we're going to start charging people and we're going to get going. We need to get organized here. So that was a nice little moment of like, I don't know. It was, it was overall an enjoyable episode, I would say. So let's get into the ratings real quick because I don't want to talk about Angel forever. The um, object of the episode, I'm, I didn't really know what to say, but I chose Angel's basement apartment because it is very cool with all the exposed brick and the like sort of industrial look to it. It's very different than his like more elegant, he had much more like stereotypical vampire elegant tastes in um, his places that he lived in in Buffy but in this it's it's much more utilitarian but it's still classy it's lots of like browns and it's lots of metal and brick and it's very masculine but in a classy way <laughs> it, it looks homey you know Angel's places always look homey you do want to hang out at Angel's places for sure although R.I.P. to the um, Frank Lloyd Wright mansion set that we're never going to see again from that he lived in in the last season of Buffy the quote again like I said was that quote from Doyle with his Irish accent um we all got something to atone for which I can't do accents so I'm sorry MVP um Cordelia obviously like no question she is immediately set up as not falling for Russell's shit whereas all the other women are kind of like swoon a little bit and are kind of under his thrall but she is immediately smarter than that um plus she's you know she's trying to make it she's trying to make it as an actress in Hollywood which makes total sense for her character and at the end she pulls all the shit together and says, look, we need to start charging people, which, yeah, I think is totally reasonable. If we, if I didn't have the whole Buffy's not allowed to charge people example, on the other hand, I would be totally in support of Angel charging people. I am totally in support of Angel charging people. It's just why the double standard is all I'm saying. So MVP, Cordelia, outfit is <laughs> just Angel angel's new look which is basically just all black it looks good on him so i'm into it fine sure five by five ratings as far as the treatment of women in this very first episode of angel i give it a two because cordelia is the only woman that's really treated with much respect um we do i mean tina gets to be kind of an interesting character but in the end she she runs away from angel because like she sees him in vamp face and scares the fuck out of her totally understandable but her running away from angel is what got her killed because as soon as she gets home russell is there and he somehow like enthralls her and then he immediately kills her so she is kind of shown as being a not super smart damsel in distress in the end like you might you think that maybe she's gonna be a little bit interesting but then she turns out she's actually not that smart and then she gets killed and then um what other women do we have in this episode 
at the very beginning of the episode, Angel saves a couple of unnamed women, or just one, I don't know, but she's sort of like, oh my god, how can I thank you, man, and man, and just like fawning all over him. There's going to be a lot of that in this series, a lot of him saving women, and them just like wanting to immediately do it with him and to thank him, which is fucking so tropey is that all guys think about they just like are sitting around going oh i just want to write a story where there's this superhero guy that saves women from getting killed and then they immediately repay me with sex like really you can't think of anything more interesting than that that's all you got that's like 90 percent of pop culture right there like really so we're gonna get a little bit of that with the fucking angel series but so overall treatment of women is not great i mean the only respect is towards Cordelia and even that is kind of not really given much you know because Angel sort of dismisses her like well it's nice to see she's grown as a person <laughs> so we're not even really supposed to respect her very much we're supposed to see that she's not like other girls but I don't know so I'm giving that a two as far as overall enjoyability of the episode I mean, it was a pretty good premise for Angel. I feel like it sets up exactly what you're going to get with this show for the most part. So I'll give that a three. Um, just kind of middle of the road. Wasn't that great. It did have some cool music in it. Um, it, I mean, it kind of, I don't think if for some reason I had never seen Buffy and I somehow stumbled upon this very first episode of Angel, just independent of anything else, I don't think it would have made me want to continue watching. You know, just from this first episode, it would have been like, okay, it's another Batman type show with the vampire, with the soul. Meh, okay, and he's not like the other guys because he doesn't want sex. Like, women still want to give him sex for saving them, but he's not going to accept it because he's broody. It's different. I would have seen that it was a slightly different take on that sort of bullshit, but I don't think it would have drawn me in. So it's getting a six as the overall um, score. Let me, I forgot to, I know I highlighted some things in the episode guide. So I want to consult that really quick just in case I left anything out. Oh, okay. Yeah, this pissed me off. I highlighted this little sector. This is a... An interview with Joss Whedon, and he said, Somebody asked me how me and Greenie, as in David Greenwald, can do both shows and stay sane. And then he goes on to talk about that, blah, 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 make some jokes. <laughs> so, in Joss Whedon's mind, it's his show and David Greenwald's show, both Buffy and Angel. What about Marty fucking Noxon, you fucking asshole? Like, Marty Noxon is basically running Buffy at this point. She is the showrunner for seasons four through seven of Buffy. And he doesn't even mention her. He's just like, me and Greenie, we're doing these two shows together. Isn't this crazy how we're just, like, so overachieving? Ugh! I hate you, Joss Whedon. I fucking hate you. So, okay, and then there's the thing about, I mentioned Lindsay... Angel goes to the L.A. library in the middle of the night, but none of the branches in L.A. are open 24 hours. Most close at 8. That was uh, Nikki Stafford's uh, little bitch, bitch moment there. Bitchy, bitching about things. Music in the episode. There was some good music in the episode. Um, Wellwater Conspiracy. 
Howie Beck, Gus Gus. So I want to look up some of that because I remember thinking, yeah, that sounds cool. I don't remember that. Um, so yeah, interesting music in the episode. Okay, so that's it. That's me talking about Buffy and Angel for an hour and 40 minutes and my throat hurts. So I would like to say that I'll get more efficient at this, but y'all know I won't. So thanks for listening. I love you so much. I will see you guys um, since it's now Tuesday. <laughs> You know, it's going to be time to talk about the next episode of Buffy and Angel in four days from now. So I'll see you then. Bye.